Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Thanks for having me again. We're talking 10 investment mistakes that people tend to make when they're building portfolios. You've got 10 mistakes. You've got your notes in front of you, which we're going to go over. Uh, So just to recap the episodes we've done so far, we did one where we talked about um, the growth alts and growth strategies, um, like the asset classes in general. Then we talked about defensive alts and defensive asset classes. This one, we're talking about mistakes. So sometimes counterpoints are the best lessons. And the next one we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to give a fictitious example of a couple who are trying to build a, a portfolio that focuses on passive income. And finally, we'll answer questions. So if you do have questions, please send them to podcast at rast.com.au and we'll answer those uh, in an upcoming episode. But mate, today we've got 10 things to get through. So I'm thinking a few minutes on each. If you could give us some examples and we'll just riff from there. Um, this, I think this will be a bit of fun. I had to stop at 10. It was, it was quite, <laughs> I've actually got 14, so we'll have to cut a few off during, okay. the, <laughs> okay. during the chat. Well, um, I'm sure a lot of them like kind of loop together and can be solved through some pretty simple strategies. So, yeah. yeah. And they all come back to one almost, but we'll save that towards the end. Yep. I think otherwise no one will listen to the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> uh, so, I think the first one we talked about was assuming that something bigger is automatically better. Um, part of that um, background in in advice in different parts of the mm-hmm. uh, industry. And there's always this assumption being with the biggest fund, being with the biggest uh, bank being with the biggest anything is mm-hmm. safer and and more trustworthy. Good point. Which yeah, yeah I won't put any specific <laughs> names out there, um, but big does not equal better or cheaper or more secure. And the other part was that you know there's as many billion dollar businesses that have disappeared in a couple of weeks for by poor management decisions mm. as well. So that's a good point. Uh, we see this particularly on the managed fund side where funds tend to go into asset accumulation mode. They go from like, let's focus on performance to let's see how much fees we can make in the next year by just bloating the fund. Yeah. So does um, maybe just on that then, when you look at fund managers, is capacity or like where they set the limit on how much they can take into the fund a key criteria for you? I think it is. It's more important for smaller, when they're investing into smaller companies themselves, but yep. there is a natural tendency that if you get to a large size and you've got institutional investors who are reviewing you on a quarterly basis against the ASX or another benchmark that you don't want to lose an mm. institutional mandate. For sure. So you can tend to move towards the index. So yeah, bigger can in many cases end up in the index. And that's probably why uh, it's something like 80 to 90% of Australian active Aussie equity managers underperform the index. Yeah. Um, and we, we do see that we see like the creep, the strategy creep. So you look at funds and you see that they've made a lot of their money. If you look at the attribution, you see it's come from like mid caps or something like this in Aussie. Yeah. And then as they've got bigger, they can't invest in those companies anymore. So they get bigger and bigger and bigger positions. And their strategy has creeped and all of a sudden they're large cap Aussie, which is pretty like it's not it's a pretty efficient market. So you don't really get that alpha there. And a lot of the best returns come in the first few years of operations, yeah. unfortunately, too. And that's when most ratings agencies aren't providing any no one's ratings in there yeah. but themselves. So. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so. Okay, so that's um, assuming bigger is always better, which is not necessarily the case. What's number two? Position sizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of people I've seen, young and old, that will hold, say, a, I mean, there's an example, 
the meme stocks and the kind of Aussie version of meme stocks where mm. people would buy them as the same holding that they'd have BHP or CBA or CSL in their portfolio. So mm. if you've got investing in a $100 million company, you should size it appropriately. Mm. It's higher risk, naturally, mm. uh, hopefully higher returns, but not always the case. Mm. So don't position everything the same size. Mm. How about then, um, so you're saying like if you've got like a, would you start from the top down? Would you say we're going to start with strategic asset allocation? You've got sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds or defensive. Yep. Um, and then from there, you're going okay. What's a, an appropriate level of diversification within each of those buckets? So, like, say for example, like if you if you were looking at a fund manager, say you're looking at an Aussie equities fund manager. Yep. And they're doing large cap Aussie. Would what would be appropriate for for you to allocate to them, like alloc- uh, percentage wise for one manager? For an individual, well, we'd always say we'd compare it to we have invested directly in the past, so buying ASX stocks. Mm-hmm. You're looking at 20 individual stocks in a portfolio. But generally, okay. if you're investing in a manager, they're going to hold 30 to 40, if not more. Mm-hmm. So you're more comfortable holding larger positions in funds because they're more diversified naturally. So yep. you'd probably hold two to three times more in an Aussie equity manager than you would in an Aussie equity individually. Yep. If that- yep. For sure. That makes sense. Yeah. We find it doesn't matter if you're advised or you're unadvised. Some people just get position sizing wrong. Yeah. Um, and it's always an interesting conversation around, uh, when, particularly when you talk to consultants, how they think about it. It seems like there is some sort of consensus around like mean variance and whatever, but it, it's kind of each to their own. Um, number three that you've got is focusing too much on cost. Now, this will be for some listeners, we've taught that cost is everything. Like keep cost low. It's one of the things that you can control. Yeah. And you've talked in the past about how have, you have like a fee budget. So where do people go wrong with this? Well, it's in a few different parts. I mean, if you're looking for professional advice, pay for it. Like things yep. like accounting, like advice. There, are You know, there's people that spend their entire career and you're buying their yeah. their expertise in that. Yep. Um, and I've seen too many mistakes made when people cut corners and think they can do it themselves and then miss something, and it it just turns out negatively that's just on their kind of advice side mm-hmm. um and then not being negative towards some of the trading platforms that are growing more so probably the ones in the us yeah is the old saying was uh if you're not paying you're the product yep. is probably yeah. <laughs> the best way to think about it so where's if it's free where's the data going because it's not a free service mm. in any other area so yep. and then you get what you pay for so you're buying the if you buy an index you're buying the average you just you don't get the drawdown will be the same as the average. The returns will be the same as the average. Yep. I think is key for that one. Yeah, I think you make a good point there about brokerage as well. Like um, a lot of those brokers, you have different holding structures as well. Right? Yeah. Like wh- how your assets held, I think is really important to understand because you want you want your money to be safe. Because the crypto market's kind of going through that at the moment. Yeah, exactly. The- Decentralized versus centralized okay. versus half and half and then getting caught out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Like focusing too much on cost. I think we as an industry now have reached a point where um, there are so many low cost alternatives. You can save money in certain ways, but in other ways, it may not make sense to save money. Yeah. Like there are certain markets and there are certain uh, types of products and maybe active is better than passive. And we've kind of reached that point or getting close to it, I would say. Um, okay. So number four is something that uh, we talked a bit off air about. Uh, this is something that we see not just in equities, not just, you know, you and I, it's everyone tends to do this. Yeah. They let this tail wag the dog, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, tax-driven investing, if you're, uh, if the main premise of investing in something is for tax benefits, mm-hmm. 
it generally means the investment isn't that good. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that negatively gearing isn't a good strategy, but if the only benefit you're getting is from the tax deduction on depreciation or interest payments, the asset may not be that good. Yeah. It's probably the key. Yeah. Um, there's examples in the kind of that have caused changes in regulation in the advice industry. So you go back to things like um, Great Southern and some of these almond and other agricultural plantations, but they're all tax driven. So essentially, when you invested, you got you prepaid fees for up to five to ten years, hmm. but got an upfront tax deduction for doing it. So the huh. biggest driver of a lot of those investments was saving tax in one year. Yep. Um, and ultimately, the investments didn't turn out. Mm. And most of them went it's defaulted. Like the, so it's like when you go to the accounting conferences and there's the joke: "Who wants to pay more tax?" Yeah, <laughs> you should put up your hand because it means you're earning more, right? That's what my accountant tells me all the time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and charges you for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, um, so we see this a lot, and I think we're going to potentially find out, or at least investors are going to find out the flip side of this, which is that when you don't have capital growth in a lot of these negatively geared things, whether it's property or whatever, things you know can go wrong. And yeah. That's where things get scary because you don't have that margin of safety. Um, you're basically towing the line between profitability, you know, or holding costs, and it can get pretty hairy. Tax deduction means you're, you're losing money. Yeah, like cash money usually. So mm. that's what you have to be wary of. And if it means you're relying on long-term growth, um, which has worked in the last ten years, but plenty of ten-year periods where it hasn't. Yeah, for sure. Um, how about this one then? So we often get sucked in by gimmicks and. Um, you know, like marketing, fund managers, ETF providers, all different types of product providers. Um, it's very easy to succumb to that. And I know a lot of investors that don't have experience in the market will get sucked into the latest fad or theme. Yeah. Um, how do you guard against that? Because I feel like that's a risk. Yeah, I see that as not having a proper strategy in place. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we do with every client we meet is build, it can be up to 30 pages, but two-page investment strategy mm -hmm. says what type of investments we're going to hold what kind of allocations between uh, asset you know asset classes like domestic equities global equities and then how many holdings within each and then where do things like themes or trends fit in there uh, mm -hmm. what sort of allocations should they have so the key there is when something new comes up you know, the, the marketing is great at emotion you know connecting with your emotions mm -hmm. like green energy or food or robotics it's all topical but how do you fit that in your portfolio? Where does it sit? And what's the premise of putting it in? Um, I think is key. So it's having a, a, an actual structure and strategy in place before you consider anything so you can keep referring to it. So I feel like there's two risks in here. There's one where you get led into strategies that you don't need. Yep. And the other one is not having a proper strategy. So on that, you mentioned it could be just like a two-page document. Yep. How do you build a real strategy? How do you build? Yeah. Like what, what kind of questions would you be putting into that? Like hypothetical questions? Would it be like, this is my tax strategy? This is my ethical criteria? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, like the, the starting point is what do you what do you want? Um, what return do you want? Yeah. What income do you want? Okay. And then it all kind of filters from there. Yeah. And then you go through what are your preferences? What kind of losses are you comfortable with? Are there certain asset classes you don't want to invest into? What are your ethical preferences? Um, are you growth-oriented? Do you, you think trends or themes are going to be more powerful sources of return? And then what instruments do you want to use? So we're agnostic to product. So whether it's a fund, an ETF, a stock, an unlisted fund, we'll use anything if it gives us the right exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's important to know what your options are or what your preference is when you start 
um, I think there's quite a few groups have had have ba- uh, kind of basic or templates that you can you can see. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, I think you can. There's a lot you can download on, online as well that where you can come up with like just very s- simple templates of how to construct it yourself. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. then things like rebalancing. So the perfect example would be 30 June. Most people's global or domestic equity portfolios are going to be underweight to where they probably were six months ago. Mm. And its strategy says if it's say five percent underweight then you should increase your global equity allocation you mm. may not feel comfortable but that's yeah it's, that is what it is and i think that's yeah. having a plan in place gives you that comfort to do that yeah um yeah I, I i see this a lot like people have come in and they become collectors i call them collectors they just buy this buy this buy this buy this buy this and never really think about what it actually means yeah but then zoom out and be like well, what am i actually doing here you know, do you come across people like that? I've had clients with 70 to 80 investments, stock investments uh, in a portfolio. Yeah, well. And then it just gets to the point where either you're better off having an ASX 200 index mm-hmm. <laughs> than having Might 80 well investments. Pay 10 basis points. Yeah. yeah. Or most, I couldn't imagine the paperwork, you know, having dividend statements come through and the tax return. Uh, and then most of the investments have no impact on the return. So what's the point of holding them, mm. um, which – Never comes off well when you tell a client to <laughs> sell forty holdings. Um, but I mean, that's uh, our job is to be kind of objective and tell people what they don't want to hear, yeah. not what they do want to hear all the time. Oh, for sure it is. Yeah, um, um, I you know I see with different types of asset classes too. There's just like a mismatch of just different things in there um, yeah. that t- like there's no reference to like how does this react with something else in my portfolio? Yeah, you know. Um, the, the, the best portfolios are designed specifically to react to certain things. Yeah. And if you just throw everything together, you could just have all correlated positions that go south at one time. We're finding that with like tech companies, like people that build portfolios purely out of tech. Um, they're finding that out right now, how hard that is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think the ease that you can buy things now. So the new ETFs coming out every week. There's a lot of new listed products. You can buy – basically, you could be listening to a presentation and buy that while you're in the presentation if yeah. you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. That's not what we would advocate for. Yeah. Go to the room where there's no one, sta- no yeah. one presenting. Um, yeah, so it's just a quick one and maybe just catching a bit off guard here is like, let's say – because you said starting with like – what people want. A lot of people that listen to the series want income from the portfolio, consistent income. Yeah. If if someone had, say, a million dollars in their investment portfolio, could they get, you know, the old 4%, you know, sustainable to take out? Is that possible to do right now? Or Definitely. Yeah? Yeah. Because that was built on the premise of you get 7% returns, 3% is inflation, 4% is kind of the return that you get in, yep. you know, after inflation. I think it's improving. I mean, inflation is going to be the challenging one because you inflation is a 12-month kind of rolling. At the moment, it's 5%. Yeah. It could be 7% and then it could be 2% next year. Mm. Uh, but the key would be focusing on that income and then but making sure you're buying income that is growing, so not just income that's coming from tax benefits or from companies that aren't reinvesting, but you're actually getting a growing income stream. But I think fours is achievable. Term deposit rates – looking sexy again mm, all of a sudden three percent three point two i mean you're yeah. still like negative 1.8 if you add inflation to it uh but mm. 3.2 and only six weeks ago i think you could get less than one for yeah. a two-year term deposit so all those things help in boosting that income and then you know the asx i think is still yielding about four percent um and plenty of new kind of alternative oh. investments as well we're recording this in june 2022 uh, would would you consider locking in 
term deposits at this rate, like knowing that in real terms it's going backwards. Like if you're you've got a two year say term deposit at three percent, the big infl- question inflation's five point one. When the RBA went to look yesterday, like you're going backwards two percent per year. Not really. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Depends if you spend money or not. Yeah. Well, true. Yeah. True. Uh, for a por- I think for a portion, and depends on the person. Um, if you've got sufficient capital, and you can deal with three percent from part of your portfolio, that's a guaranteed three percent. You're never going to lose that money. Mm. Uh, so for small portions, yep, I probably wouldn't be locking more than a year okay. um, at the moment. Yeah, who knows? There's just as many people thinking that interest rates will fall, or they won't cap out where the market's predicting at three point eight percent. And if that's the case, then they'll look attractive. Yep. Um, but it's yeah, it's hard. We wouldn't be locking too much in, and yeah. not not for too long. Yeah, well, savings accounts are also paying decent interest anyway, or you know, cash flow trust. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so there's another one that you've got here, uh, which is naive diversification. I think this kind of speaks to what we we're just talking about. Yeah. How do you see this playing out? A lot of people come in with almost the exact same portfolio. They'll have four banks, two resource companies, a retail, a grocery retailer. And they'll think it's the perfect portfolio. You know, I'm fully diversified. Fully I'll be dividends. fine. <laughs> and I mean, it's it's worked. So for 10 years, the ASX has done 10% per annum. Yep. Uh, depend which 10-year period. If you went back two years, it went zero. Went mm. nowhere for 10 mm. years as well. Um, but it's this concept that holding, you know, 10 investments means you're diversified. You, diversification is diversification of countries, revenue sources, styles as we were saying like Mm. value growth income diversification of income sources i think uh same thing we've spoken about before is you know holding two etfs that almost do the same thing you're still exposed to the same factors and the same risks so we the key is kind of the way you look at diversification the way you consider it Mm. i've got a lot of clients who refuse to invest overseas they just think it's high risk to be invested into apple Google, Microsoft, and um, I did explain, you know, you've got an iPhone, you've, you use Microsoft Word, you, all these things are used yeah. everywhere in the world, but that's still viewed as uh, riskier. Uh, but that's the only way you get diversification is to find mm. exposure to different economies. Yeah, maybe they are better off in an ETF or something like that, you know, where they can I'll try. feel like they're <laughs> not investing overseas. Um, okay, so assuming every asset always goes up is one of the the key risks here to building a portfolio come on surely this can't be true if if your time frame's long enough yeah yeah they they probably do you know capitalism unless you think capitalism is going to end at some point Mm -hmm. which uh every 10 years it seems like we think at least one call for it yeah uh and i think you i've spoken to plenty of people who bought properties and investment properties all on the assumption that property always goes up Mm. and they've made no money they've gone sideways it's been bad tenants um so a rising tide doesn't always lift every boat. Uh, and then it's different. So we work with older retirees who are in decumulation. So they're they're drawing funds rather than putting more money into their mm. portfolios. And in that case, you know, you you can't just rely on tight long-term capital appreciation. You have to start finding other sources of, of returns, I think is key. Where do you often look for that? Uh well, like you go back to diversification, essentially. Mm. Um, you don't want to be exposed to a single asset class or as, you know, bond or relying on interest rates or bond yields like effectively as where most of the returns have come from for the last 30 years or so. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you could invest in Japan too and that's been pretty ordinary for quite a long time. But 
it could start to look good. But low yeah. unemployment, yeah. deflation isn't all bad. Yeah, yeah, true. Everyone's true. got a job and yeah, that's it. Yeah. we don't speculate on property. So Well, yeah. And like you said, I think there are certain periods when certain markets perform better and certain products will perform better, I think. Yeah. The value investing, traditional value tilts have underperformed for quite a long time until recently. So, yeah. uh, you know, every everything seems to have the time in the sun. Just assuming that they're always going to work is pretty scary. And especially when you go down to a company-specific basis too. Like, yeah. yeah, the ASX might go up, but the ASX drops out companies that go bankrupt or, you mm. know, fail as well. So if you're investing into individual companies, there's no guarantee that, that the company is going to be worth more. There's a lot of individual factors that go into it. Got to see the forest and the trees. Yeah. Um, how often do you check your investment portfolio? Personally, <laughs> um, once a year probably. Oh, really? I do, for performance, yeah. I, I'll check it when I want to buy something. Um, I'm not a collector. I'm probably yeah. a borderline collector sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the way we, you know, internally we do a quarterly investment committee where we'll go back to what what our model portfolio and the way that's invested. Mm-hmm. But personally, it's probably less often than that in terms of performance. Okay. More likely when I'm preparing the paperwork for my tax return yep. uh, my smsf return yeah um and do you find because you've named this as one of the risks do you find clients checking far too often yeah we can see when our clients log in to right. our system um some people log in every day even though it's a not a live system so the share <laughs> prices aren't live uh and definitely too much and you can tell uh, i mean the, the way we respond to that we started doing a daily market update because we know people are watching and listening to what's happening to the companies in their portfolio. So how do you answer questions before they come up? And that yeah. was our kind of response to it. But I think that might have contributed to more activity more as well. Yeah. Uh, so I think quarterly, in our view, we do quarterly reviews for our clients where we look at everything, tell them about every investment. That's probably too often. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think six monthly for most people mm-hmm. will be fine unless you're buying something. So put it on cruise control, automate your investing if you're younger um, and look at every six months. But you still have like the rebalancing that might be occurring between that, right? Like yeah. now. Like I imagine there's a lot of portfolios as we come into June 30th yeah. that are looking a bit of out, of, like out of shape. Yeah, that's why we do it quarterly because it can, you know, the most global equity strategy down 10 to 15%. So naturally that part of your portfolio goes underweight and then you make the decision is – do we want, uh, you know, is our strategic asset allocation to global equities where we want it to be? Yes. Then we rebalance. Yeah. Um, okay. But I sense. think, yeah, quarterly brings good discipline. Mm. Um, there is um, this old – so that was looking at your performance too often is one of the mistakes you outlined. Yeah. Um, for but, number nine here, um, this is something that it sounds gimmicky, get rich quick. Because I know that you deal with advice uh, with clients who are typically well to do, have you know quite affluent, or um, you know have portfolios in place already. Yeah. Um, so they tend to be you know financially literate. You would look at them and you think they're financially literate, uh, and they still getting caught out in these things. Yeah, everyone does. It's yeah. it's just natural. You know, the two things that that sell news mm. and sell sell products is it greed and greed and fear, fear. yeah and it all works perfectly yep. uh and and Absolutely. marketing and media plays into it all the time so you know when the front page of the paper says 38 billion dollars lost even though the market's worth you know a trillion dollars or two mm. trillion dollars um it still gets gets headlines so i think it was perfect the 2020 you know the part of what we have to do as advisors now is to study behavioral finance as well so yeah. we get tested on 
behavioral biases. Oh, and, right. and part of this get rich quick is, you know, if you have one good idea, which everyone did in 2020, you know, if you bought any mm. small cap tech stock, you did exceptionally well. For sure. Then you assume you can do it again and you naturally assume, you know, confirmation bias, you assume it's your skill, not luck. Most of the time it's luck. And then most of the time real wealth gets created through boring old compounding. So the majority of your portfolio, get your 80% core right, let asset allocation and compounding over the long term take care of that and then play around with your get rich quick on the outside yeah, but yeah, fair but, but get your core right i think is the key there yeah have your core in satellite if that's if that's everyone wants to tink it right i feel like if you say don't do this don't do that they go and do it anyway it's like a teenager they just yeah. they're gonna go and try it anyway so it's hard to say no quarantine all the time. that yeah quarantine that somewhere else and you know separate account or something like that um with the right position sizing too yeah like oh, for sure. people if it's interesting and they know something about it, they're all involved in that sector if the client's an engineer yep and it's hard to be constantly the you know the brick wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. They'll find um, a new. They keep shopping around. They'll find a new advisor. Someone says yes all the time. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Okay, so this is a, a one. This final one, which is the tenth risk, which is you've said giving into soon or changing strategy in the short term. For me, this is one that I think a lot of investors are currently at risk at making. This is the risk that they face: is that all of a sudden. Their traditional investment approach, whether it's high quality investing or investing in wide mode businesses, is under threat. Yeah. And, you know, we've always thought that bonds were a safe haven, but bonds are downs and now everyone's thinking, well, do I need bonds anymore? Um, people are really concerned. Do I sell now and change my strategy? What would you say then? Never. As long as your strategy isn't, you know, buying microcap <laughs> tech stocks. Yep. Uh, and you're investing, you know, if it's a quality, if it's uh, large cap or if you, you're just well diversified and you're just un you're underperforming. I mean, a crisis or a sell-off or a bear market is never the time to switch. Everyone thinks they can sell it. You know, before the bottom, they th always feel like it's going to fall for it further mm. and they think they can time it on the way up. That's why there's all these papers that talk about how, you know, individual investors always underperform both the index and the funds that they're invested into yep. because inflows go up after the fund's done well and they, mm. they outflows go up when the fund's performing poorly, which is exactly the wrong time. Yep. So I think if you've got a long-term strategy and you know what that strategy is, don't let short-term noise kind of drag you away from it. Maybe, you know, if tinker on the edges, if there's companies you think have changed completely, yeah, move on and put it into a, into something else. But don't throw your strategy out. Mm. Okay. That's good to know because like a lot of investors, are, they may have, you know, a strategy that's quite simple and they think, well, my strategy was to invest in a basket of, I don't know, if we use stocks or whatever and have some ETFs around that or even some funds. Um, and now they're seeing stocks down 20%. Uh, they're seeing some ETFs, even bond ETFs, down ten percent, and then they're thinking, "Well, where can I go? You know, maybe I'll go to gold because gold looks like it's held up five percent or whatever this year. So maybe I'll put more in gold for yeah. the next five years." And that's just part of investing. So you know, the on average, which we haven't seen for I think ten or twelve years, that a balanced portfolio, so forty sixty between defensive and growth, returns delivers negative return every at least one in every five to six years mm. just part of markets mm. and the same thing for equity markets there's more uh more regular negative returns but that's just part and parcel the the benefit of being exposed is that over the long term returns have have been fairly strong and better than most other asset classes so yeah if we didn't have periods like this then everyone would be 
constantly invested 100% equities or whatever, right? Exactly. And yeah, there'd be no um, alpha to get, no excess return. So just to recap on some of these 10 here, we've got assuming bigger is better. We've got position sizing, focusing too much on cost, tax-driven investments, but naive diversification is when you buy one or more things that are the same as something else in your portfolio. And that flows into the next one, which is not having a real strategy, which you said can be simple. You know, just have something, write it down. Um, assuming every asset class always goes up or every asset, property is the, the prime example in Australia. Crypto is probably another one for speculators. Uh, looking at performance too often, I've got to admit, I don't, from my personal performance, I probably look at it like you once a year if I'm lucky, just to work out my capital gains, tax and losses. Yeah. That's basically it. Um, get rich quick. Um, we that's obvious um, we all get sucked into this it's very very easy and elusive like we see in the AFR or you know Wall Street Journal hotshot fund manager comes out and you know says this is the new thing and then we all jump on board um, and conversely the opposite happens too yeah. and then finally giving in too soon which is something that a lot of investors who maybe have those diversified portfolios are thinking this investing thing is scary I don't want to do it I'm going to change strategy I'm going to go to cash the, I, I heard a horror story. That's all 10, by the way. But I heard a horror story during COVID where 26-year-old called their super fund and changed to the most – they did a DIY mix. They did 50% cash and 50% like the most conservative option with their industry super fund. Yeah. And obviously the person on the other end of the line who I knew, um, he had to do it because he can't give personal advice. Yeah. yeah. So we he was like, stop. okay, yep. Sure, and that just capitalizes the loss. Yeah, and then you miss out on the you know 100 percent rebound. Yeah, in straight out of that. In the 12 months after, so I think if you're young and you're building wealth over the long term, then don't change it. Just make sure you're not naively diversified at the yep. same time. Yep. yep, and position sizing. Um, that's a question I got recently. Was how much crypto should I have? <laughs> and I was like, well. <laughs> Depends. <laughs> um, but anyway, mate, this, is, um, this has been a good conversation. Really easy for people to kind of wrap their head around these 10 things. We'll put them in the show notes too if you just need to reflect on them. They'll be linked to, to Waddle Partners so people will be able to find you there. Uh, it's Drew at Waddle Partners. You normally put your email address yeah, on, the, on the podcast, which is pretty pretty brave. <laughs> um, so send you can send Drew an email. But send us an email if you have a question. You can send a question to podcast at rask.com.au. We're going to answer your questions soon. So please do that. Um, that'll be the fifth and final episode of Passive Income. But the next one, we're going to run a scenario of a million dollar portfolio for a couple that's looking for passive income. So Drew Meredith from Model Partners, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me again.